Hit the lights. You've discovered the Half Watt Podcast. We want to educate and entertain by tapping into the most trusted source of new technology, the ones installing and innovating it. You, the tradespeople that build from the ground up. Join us as we talk with industry leaders, veteran contractors, and even some young blood. Welcome aboard. I'm Michael Brooks, and I super appreciate you being here. Today we're going to do a, a lecture called DC to Daylight. It's uh, those of you who've been through my class, you've heard this before. If you've not, well, then buckle in and let's do this. So. First off, I want you, since this is a podcast, to envision a battery. And that's really what we have to do. We can't, I can't draw one out for you yet. We don't have that happening quite yet, but we will at some point. So envision a battery. Lead acid battery is the easiest thing to do. So you've got a couple of terminals on this black box, and you got a negative and a positive terminal. So all the electrons are on one side, if it's a new charge battery, on one side of those terminals. Uh, it's usually on the negative side. That's the way that we look at it. And when we make the connection from negative to positive, the electrons run from one side to the other. Once they've run all the way from one terminal to the other, uh, they're done. The battery is, is exhausted, and it either needs to be recharged or, or replaced, one of the two. And, um, and that, my friends, is direct current because what you've got is a potential somewhere and a, a place for those electrons to go. And the, the current that flows from one terminal to the other, of course, would be uh, quite a lot if you, if you just tied a, a wire across a battery. I don't recommend that at all. So normally it runs through a circuit, and direct current is not dull by any stretch of the imagination. It, it obviously is what almost every piece of electronic gear needs in order to operate, but it isn't all that exciting. Uh, really, it's a potential. If uh, I if I have a 12 volt battery, I've got 12 volts of potential, and the longer I run that battery with no charger on it, it begins to just go lower and lower and lower as that chemical reaction is fulfilled and eventually when the chemical reaction is done the battery is exhausted and that's the end of the game so direct current is definitely a a a fun topic and there's lots of math we can do on it and lots of things to talk about but i find it to be a little dull uh, and once we begin to oscillate that direct current. Once you take those electrons and begin to oscillate them uh, negative and positive, negative and positive, negative and positive, and we do it at a rate, and we'll just start off at 60 hertz. So you have to obviously envision a sine wave where we're we're removing those electrons up and down, up and down, up and down, at a 60 cycle per second rate or 60 hertz rate, which is what you would find if you. Uh, went to your outlet in your house. In America, it's all 60 hertz stuff. Uh, other countries use different rates. Uh, the United Kingdom uses 50. Uh, since 60 is easily divided into 360, I don't know how they did 50, but uh, that's, the, that's the Brits and that's how they do it. Here in America, we use 60 hertz. It's, uh, it's easy to figure out and it sounds like a B flat. And so if you walk into an electrical room anywhere, uh, a big electrical room where you've got uh, you know transfer switches and large transformers, you'll hear that B flat buzz uh, humming in the background. And so 
it obviously makes a noise. So you are really and truly moving these electrons on uh, on these conductors, and they are making a sound that you can audibly hear. And so if we go higher than 60 hertz, if we start to go higher and higher in frequency, the properties begin to change really dramatically. And the, the next stop that I like to make is the 400 hertz uh, range. So if you go from 60 to 400 hertz, now you've got a much higher tone. Uh, 400 hertz is used a lot by uh, older elevators. You would have a motor generator that you would feed with three-phase uh, 480 and uh, the output would be a 400 hertz signal that then you could easily use to drive uh, motors or even rectify that and go back into DC if you wanted to. But that 400 hertz is a more efficient way of producing the DC if that's what you're gonna do with it. It's also runs motors at a little bit faster rate. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with it, AC motors uh, generally only run at one speed, where a DC motor, you can have variable speeds depending on how much voltage you give it. Uh, you can even change the direction if you change the polarity. Um, so you can alter the speed of a DC motor much easier than you can alter the speed of an AC motor. An AC motor comes out of the factory with uh, usually set up for one or two speeds, and depending on how you feed it is how fast it's gonna go. It's by changing the frequency that you're going to change the speed that that AC motor will run. And um, if I'm wanting to run at a higher speed, 400 hertz might be the the right the right uh, frequency. I know that uh, when I was in the military, uh, the equipment I worked on took 400 hertz in and converted it into DC because it was a much more efficient uh, way to do it. Uh, we we got a lot more duty cycle out of our power supplies. And so I was used to working with that uh, as an input frequency for the stuff that I worked on, the uh, the electronic warfare equipment that I I uh, teched. The, uh, uh, the, the keen thing here is as we go higher in frequency, this property begins to change really dramatically. Now, I will uh, go ahead and, and make a, a jump up to uh, the AM band, and let's stop at 1190 kilohertz or 1.190 megahertz, which in Portland is the frequency for KX, which is a big AM radio station here in Clackamas. So I stop at that frequency because in between the 400 hertz and the, and the 1.190 megahertz is uh, a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there. But uh, 1190 is uh, pretty much a, a standard in this town. Everybody knows it. We've all seen the antennas. We've all we've all listened to KEX. Uh, we've all listened to the Blazers on it and such. So it's a uh, it's definitely uh, a frequency people know. Now at that frequency, uh, your your electrons now are moving back and forth, up and down, at a significantly higher rate than than 60 hertz. And the properties are completely different at that point. Now, when these electrons hit those antennas, they jump into space and they will go thousands of miles at night. So an AM radio, an AM radio station like 1190 that's putting out 50,000 watts night and day, during the day, you're lucky to hear that station 100 miles away. And that's just because of the ionosphere. It just eats that signal up or it, it, it just doesn't bounce back the way it does at night. At night, the ionosphere uh, acts as a, sort of a mirror, 
and it actually bounces that signal back down to Earth and then back up against the ionosphere and back down. And so that same signal can be heard thousands and thousands of miles away. And if you happen to be in your car listening to a podcast right now, then listen to AM radio at night and just dial through the band and you'll start picking up stations. Uh, if you're on the West Coast, you'll pick up uh, KSL out of Salt Lake. You'll pick up uh, uh, KNX out of Los Angeles, uh, KGO out of San Francisco. Um, a lot of these AM stations uh, are are used by uh, old mariners to navigate with. They had actual systems that you could aim the loop antenna at one of these uh, AM stations to help navigate back towards the coast if you're out fishing or what have you. This is obviously pre-GPS times. So with this waveform, this 1190 um, uh, sinusoidal waveform that we're talking about, 1190 kilohertz, if you can imagine the pulses, and if you can imagine my voice pulsing this higher and lower, now the, the rate isn't changing at all. So the carrier looks exactly the same, but the amplitude is changing. So as I say, 1190KX, it would actually bounce up and down, and you would see that. You can see that change. So as I spoke, the amplitude would go higher, and as I stopped speaking, it would die down and, and go lower. So that change in amplitude, that upy-downy part, can be detected and put into a speaker, and that is amplitude modulation. And that's all amplitude modulation is. And an AM radio is simple enough that you can pick it up with uh, a coil of wire and a germanium diode and a small speaker and earphone, if you can find an earphone anymore. Uh, that's all it really ever took to listen to one of these powerhouse clear channel stations. And clear channel, besides being a company, the idea of a clear channel AM station was I could put several of these stations across the United States and then feed them voice data and actually cover and blanket the entire U.S. It was uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt who had fireside chats who was probably one of the first presidents to actually be able to transmit coast to coast and be heard across all the clear channel stations so that if you had a, uh, an AM radio in your house, you could actually hear the president speak and talk about the, the world situations uh, that were happening around World War II. So that was the idea of having these huge powerhouse AM radio stations dotted across the U.S. and being able to fill in uh, in between some of those stations with smaller stations that are not so powerful. And oftentimes if you do listen to AM radio, you'll find that uh, a station that uh, is okay to listen to during the day, as soon as the sun goes down, will drop off the air and that's because they have to cut their power back and they will cut their power back because if they stayed at the same power level, they would affect the clear channel station on their frequency thousands of miles away. So they're required by law to actually turn their power down so that they don't uh, uh, swamp somebody out in another in another area where they you might be between two stations. So, but that amplitude modulation, we go back to that and we imagine the the voice levels going up and down, and us detecting that and throwing it into an audio circuit so you can actually hear it. That is AM radio, and it's just that simple. Now, when you hear lightning strikes, uh, you know you'll actually hear that noise on your AM radio. And it, it doesn't have the clarity of FM. It's not, it's not a, a perfect medium like we're all used to, but it is a medium that works really, really well. So that amplitude modulation, if I, if I hit it with my voice, well, it sounds one way. But if I just 
key the transmitter. If I just, instead of giving it a voice, I just, I just key the transmitter and then unkey the transmitter. So if I key it dit, 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 three times, then that would be the letter S. If I key it three times and I do it longer, dot, 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 then that would be an O. So dit, 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 dot, 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 dit, dit, dit would be SOS. So that amplitude modulation that we had with our voice in one instance can just turn right around and be on and off, which then is Morse code or CW. Now, CW sounds like that's old fashioned and stuff that isn't used anymore. And as a ham radio operator, I can tell you that it's, it's used quite a bit still. Um, people consider it a hobby to do uh, CW, but that's really not what it was about. Um, back in World War II, it was the way to communicate. It was practically the only way to communicate. Um, putting your voice on a radio was not easily done uh, back in World War II. It was almost all done with Morse code. And that whole concept of moving an alphabet into into dits and dashes and and sending it seems like it may be archaic to us today but because you have to have the entire modulation envelope to really hear what's happening when someone's talking on a radio if i just send the dits and the dashes i can actually pick that up further away and interpret what's happening um, even if i'm not entirely on frequency i can actually still hear it and that gives it a level of clarity and a level of, of uh, readability that you just don't get with voice. Now, right away, you're going, well, what is this? What is this guy trying to do? What is he trying to teach me here? I am opening up your mind uh, because if you've just envisioned what I've told you, then you are clearly ahead of the pack and you can see that this stuff is not all that difficult if it's explained correctly. That's what this podcast is about, is let's take something that's technical and let's break it down into its smallest components and digest it in little tiny pieces and build on that so that you can get concepts figured out and uh, absorb them, mentally absorb them. That's uh, what I teach and that's what I'll teach you today. So, so far we've talked about the sine waves, we've talked about amplitude modulation, we've talked about carrier wave or Morris code. Obviously Morris goes back to uh, the late 1800s when Samuel Morris came up with this way of, of um, alphabetizing uh, dits and dashes so that everybody could hear it. The original way that it was set up was through telegraph stations and you could actually send a telegraph across the country um, by relaying them from one operator to the other. The original setups had uh, paper tape that they pulled through, um, and the operators got so good at hearing the code that they didn't need the paper tape anymore, so they just listened to it. And um, sure enough, if you know the Morse code, then da-da is A, and da-da-da-da is B, and you know da 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 is C. I'm not gonna go into all that. But it makes it easy for you to actually interpret and hear those codes, and then it's, essentially another language. Well, if we took out the, the repetitiveness of it, if we took out the did, did, did for S, and we just imagined sending a pulse and then listening, 
and then sending a pulse and then listening and sending another pulse and then listening. And the time from when the pulse was transmitted until the time that we listened and we heard an echo come back off that pulse, that, my friends, is the basic concept of radar. So if you've ever wondered, hey, how do those things work? That is how they work. That is how a radar works. It sends pulses out, and in the time that it's listening between those pulses, if it hears an echo or a return, it measures from the beginning of the pulse until the return. That distance that it measures is the distance that the target is away from the radar. So the move from Morse code, its dits and dashes to create a language, so to speak, to something where we just have these pulses and then we listen in between those pulses for a return, that is radar. The British during World War II uh, had to fight the Germans over their own territory. It was the, the Battle of Britain. It was a pretty, uh, pretty ugly air war. So as the Germans would come across the channel to bomb the, the British in their home isles, the British had set up a radar system called the Chain Home Network, and it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it surrounded the bottom part of Britain. And these were just long wire antennas that they shot uh, high frequency uh, waves through, and much, much, much lower than you would uh, see in a modern radar today. Most modern radars work in the gigahertz range. These actually operated in the low megahertz range in the uh, what we consider the HF band. So they were just long wire antennas. They would send the pulses out, and then they had special scopes that would show them the range of a target when it came back. And because they had so many of these radar uh, uh, aerials set up and they had a way to communicate between all those stations and to centralize in one location what each station was seeing they could pretty quickly plot where the squadrons of the Luftwaffe planes were coming from and then they could send up hawkers and spitfires to go back and fight them hopefully over the over the channel but obviously if you know your history they weren't always that successful so with the addition of radar uh, we've now, in just a couple of minutes, looked at amplitude modulation, some of its pros and cons, carrier wave or Morris, some of its pros and cons, and radar, some of its pros and cons. The idea here is that if you were so inclined to read more about this, I would highly recommend reading a book. Uh, anything on the chain home radar system would, would probably pique your interest. Or, or any good World War II book, uh, especially ones that are written uh, after the 80s, where a lot of the information that was classified uh, all the way up until the 80s um, is now declassified, and you can actually read about the cat and mouse game between uh, the British military and the German military, and how they they would come up with different technologies and have to fool each other in order to uh, be successful at what they were doing. And of course, obviously, the Brits were were much more successful. Now, let's go back to uh, the simple 1190KX amplitude modulation signal. Let's go higher and higher in frequency. Let's go up to say in Portland 1059 the brew so at, at at that point now we've gone from 1190 kilohertz or 1.190 megahertz all the way up to 105.9 
megahertz. So we've gone quite a bit higher than that. We've passed a lot of different radio systems and different technologies. Uh, I've just happened to stop at the FM band because FM is something that almost all of us have heard or listened to at one point. Now, with digital FM, that's a whole different animal. And uh, I, I couldn't even begin to try to explain uh, HD radio over a podcast. I, I think uh, everybody falls asleep and crash their cars. That wouldn't be good. But we can talk about just FM stereo and that FM itself, instead of that carrier where the amplitude is changing and the carrier is being constant, with FM, the carrier changes back and forth. It actually it actually will stretch itself out a little bit and compress itself a little bit. So that, that uh, compression and pulling apart of that carrier signal, that deviation from the center frequency back and forth is how frequency modulation works. So if I deviate that frequency, I can actually discriminate that, that's the term we call it, and pull off that intelligence, that audio intelligence, right off of the change in the carrier frequency. The neat thing about FM is that I can chop off the top and the bottom of the signal. All I care about on my radio is hearing that deviation. That's it. The top and the bottom I don't need. The amplitude I essentially don't really need if I have a good uh, lock on the signal. That deviation is what I do need. So it allows you to have this very clear and clean audio. Very, very, very clean. FM is a, is a beautiful signal as compared to the AM band, which, you know, literally, like I said earlier, you get the lightning strikes, you can hear it. FM, uh, the lightning strikes you won't hear unless it happens to be close enough that you can hear it through your audio circuits, which if you're that close, there's nothing you can do about that. Duck. So that deviation back and forth on that on that carrier is how FM works. There's also a sub carrier that goes out with it that's just next to it. It's not exactly in the main carrier, it's off to one side. And uh, they can actually deviate that at the same time that they deviate the main carrier and what you wind up getting then is stereo. So I can put uh, mostly channel A on the main carrier and a little bit of channel B, which from a second microphone or a second system, and then put more B on channel on the second channel and a little bit of A, and then the, together those two will give me a nice solid uh, stereo. I'll, I'll hear uh, not in monaural, I'll hear in stereo a nice, beautiful, robust signal. So that is when you look at your radio and you see the ST light come on. If you have an older radio, uh, most of the newer ones just lock it in that way. If you don't have the both carriers, then you hear monaural. So when you hear both of them, you get the stereo, then you get the nice, rich sound. It sounds like the, the band is right there in your car with you, right? That's what we're all looking for. Now, with uh, FM, that deviation is really, really critical. And if you've operated any FRS radios or GMRS radios, you've got hunting, uh, those little tiny radios that you, that you use, uh, those are FM radios. Um, and obviously, you can... You can have a nice, clean representation of you know your hunting partner's voice when you when you talk on them. It sounds exactly like them. Uh, that's how that has. That's exactly how that happens. It just happens to be on a higher frequency. It's up around the 460 megahertz, where uh, obviously the brew was at 105.9. Now, in the FM radio band, uh, once they went to HD radio, that is 
purely a data signal that's coming out with it. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It just happens to be alongside where you can now fit in several different channels of FM um, HD radio there. And of course, with that HD radio comes a lot of other intelligence with it, you know, album covers and art and, uh, you know, lyrics and things like that. So, uh, all they've really essentially done with FM is made it uh, better and better and better and improved it. But the basic FM signals um, really haven't changed all that much. Um, a nice, nice clear audio, which is the, the thing we talk about. Now, because that deviation back and forth is representing a voice, um, it's always variable. And, you know, it, you'd, you'd have to sort of imagine what that looks like. But suppose I just deviated it between two different frequencies. Suppose I deviated uh, one frequency for, say, a zero and one frequency for a one, and I just went back and forth at a preset rate. That shifting back and forth of that carrier, uh, instead, of, instead of adding a voice to modulate it, that deviation character shift can now represent binary numbers. And that is frequency shift keying in a nutshell. It's not um, the best representation of it, but it's an easy representation of it for you to get your head around. So if you've ever heard the term FSK, if you're in the alarm industry and you've set up dialers before and you've seen the term FSK in there, that is what FSK is, it's frequency shift keying. It means that I'm moving that carrier back and forth at a predetermined uh, rate between two different frequencies. And then once I have that, I can set up a code and that code can be interpreted by modems, modulators, demodulators. Now you would think, well, that can't still be happening today. No one ever, no one really does that anymore. Well, yes they do. If we go and we look at the basic shifting back and forth between two frequencies in history, you'll find out that there was a French guy by the last name of Baudet, uh, he invented a code that would allow teletype machines to share a, uh, I think it's a five-digit code that allowed them so many characters on it. Now, a teletype machine is a machine where I can synchronize the motors, and if I push the letter A here, the letter A would pop up on the other end. Well, the code that was used between those two machines so that they were in sync and they were both talking on the same exact code uh, was invented by a French guy. And that French name, Bod, uh, for Baudet, is where Baudrid comes from, B-A-U-D. So B-A-U-D-O-T was his name. Bod came from his name because it was his data, uh, his way of interpreting the data and his way of sending the data that we use. And you would think, well, gosh, is this guy must have come up in the 40s or, or, or the 30s or something like that. No, it was the late 1800s when that was invented. And that technology is in your phone still today. So if you take your iPhone and you go to settings and you type in TTY for teletype, you will find that you have in your hands a teletype machine. The hearing impaired use TTY to communicate. So they can use TTY and they can use their terminals to communicate to an operator and get information. Now, I don't know if they're still using that system, but I know that it is still in your cell phones. So even a modern cell phone, modern 
uh, Apple iPhone or a, or an Android will have the ability to do 45 baud, which is a certain rate of teletype for the hearing impaired. So that technology, which was thought of in the 1800s, used throughout the 1900s uh, and is still used today. You can still uh, you can still listen to teletype uh, machines on uh, HF radio. Um, not just ham folks, but uh, commercial teletype and military that's still being used out there today. So um, here we go. That's how that happens. Now, if we if we look at where we're at at, at at this point in my little lecture, we've talked about AM, we've talked about carrier wave or Morse code, we've talked about the basics of radar, we've talked about frequency modulation, we've talked about modulating between two different carriers and using that for teletype or for, um, and there are several different variations off of that. There's there's uh, uh, several variations and I could we could go down that rabbit hole for half the night. All of that you've interpreted just by my telling you that over this podcast, okay? Which means that that if you have any interest in this technology at all, it's easy for you to understand if you take it one byte at a time and you build up on some of the technology. Now, I do mine through history, and I'm a history buff, so I like to read about World War II, I like to read about Vietnam, I like to read about Korean War. Um, and in World War II, the learning curve was so sharp and so steep and technology changed so fast in the years that uh, that uh, World War II occurred that it it is it is mind-numbing to not really dig into that and look at all that technology and how that changed and how it affected um, everything the entire world uh, good and for bad uh, all of the transmissions that were made uh, tactically were almost all done by Morse code operators. As a matter of fact, it was so common to listen to Morse code in World War II that everybody knew it. Uh, the the um, uh, if you listened to a lot of Morse code, you began to hear the way that someone could operate the key, which uh, means that they had a, a specific fist. That's the term that they'd say, oh, I can hear that operator and he's, his fist sounds like this. And it was their own uh, method of operating the key uh, that make the radio actually work that had a specific signature to it. So folks who intercepted uh, Morse code transmissions of the Germans or vice versa, if the Germans are intercepting British or American transmissions, got to understand who the radio operators were. Each radio had a unique signature or sound to it, which you could fingerprint eventually. All of that intelligence and all of that information, if you want to read about it, is available to you to read. Um, which was really classified uh, probably up until a lot of it up until the 80s or or, or the um, um, early early 80s at, at least I know that some of the information I read in the military when I first gave in in 82 and 83 when I first read it was still classified secret and it wasn't until the 90s when I was reading it in books that it, I had realized that it was no longer classified and you could actually um, get your head wrapped around it, um, which I thought was quite interesting for me. So if you have some of these interests, please 
you know, get download an audiobook or go to the library and and start to dive into some of the technology and realize that the folks who fought in World War II in the 40s um, were really on the cutting edge of a lot of technology that we still use today. Uh, microwave would be a good example. Microwave ovens um, have a device in them called a magnetron. That magnetron was a sought-after item in World War II because they wanted to be able to get radar, which was uh, cumbersome and because of vacuum tubes, very difficult to fit into a small package. They needed a way to produce very high frequencies uh, with very uh, high amounts of power. And there were two devices that came out of World War II that really helped uh, foster that. One was the magnetron and the other was the uh, klystron, where they're both tubes. They would they were able to produce a large amount of uh, radio frequency power in a very small package, which allowed them to then put them on aircraft uh, and or make them portable that they could be hauled behind a, a jeep or a truck. So the fight for radar in World War II and who could get radar faster, get it deployed, get it in place, um, use it for targeting. Uh, a lot of countries didn't adopt it. Japan had a very difficult time adopting radar technology. They stuck with optical technology, and unfortunately for them, uh, where the America didn't, we we did embrace radar technology. And by the time uh, the end of the war came, our destroyers were uh, having no problem sinking Japanese ships uh, and aircraft at the time, even even though it got pretty bad. With, uh, with radar technology. And so all of that is, is now available for you to read and, and kind of understand. And it's really not that difficult once you, once you get your basic um, founding you know, building blocks. So we were basically talking about FRS radios and around the 460 megahertz band. Above that, you start to go into radars. Uh, if you were going to look at your radar microwave oven in your home, it operates around 2.5, 2.6 gigahertz. And like I said, it has that magnetron in there that will help give you a lot of power. You could put 1,000 watts of RF power right down on top of your popcorn. And in a, you know less than about three minutes, you'll, you'll have super hot popcorn. We all know how that works. So as we go higher and higher in frequency, the antennas... Uh, become smaller and smaller. The transmitters become uh, more efficient. Uh, you can f you can fit uh, the antenna of a of a radar that is on a missile. You know, in the nose cone of a missile, uh, when you get up into the nine and ten and and uh, eleven gigahertz range. So really, really super high frequencies. If you look at KX, if you drive by the KX trans, uh, transmitter antenna site, um, which is near Clackamas Town Center, you'll look at those antennas, well, you're not fitting those into uh, into an airplane very easily. They're huge, right? Those gargantuan towers that you see off the side of the freeway are the way that the electrons bounce off of that antenna and into space. It takes the right size antenna with the right tuning and the right matching to make all that happen. So you look at that and you go, wow, I mean, I mean, those are big antennas. And so the lower you go in frequency, the bigger the antennas have to be. As you go higher, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. If you look at a, at a radar on a boat, like a pleasure craft, a small Furuno radar, uh, 
it could fit on your tabletop. The actual antenna is not all that large. And that is because the frequency is much higher and the wavelength is much smaller, so it fits into a smaller space. It doesn't go as far. You're not going to transmit your Furuno radar. Uh, it's not going to go thousands of miles like AM radio will during the night, but it will give you a nice picture of a buoy or another boat that's in front of you, you know, a couple miles out. So the physics of radio uh, change drastically. And as we go higher and higher in frequency, the wavelength gets smaller, uh, the antennas can get smaller, and if you pull out your iPhone again and look at it, uh, you don't even have any visible antennas on an iPhone, yet inside that iPhone are antennas for all the different cell bands, there's at least four that I'm aware of, 800 megahertz, 900 megahertz, or like it's 816, 920, something like that, and then uh, 1.2 gigahertz and 1.9 gigahertz, plus Wi-Fi, which are 2.5 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz and now even 11 in some cases, plus Bluetooth, plus other things, all built into that one phone. So you don't even see the antennas inside the phone. They're all a part of it. Yet with this phone and this technology, I can reach out and talk to a cell site a couple miles away and have super clear audio. I can look at Google. I can watch a basketball game on my phone. It's the, 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 the technology is amazing. We carry in our phones more computing technology than we ever had when we landed men on the moon. That is just how it's rapidly it's changed. And we take it for granted now, but the idea in my lecture here and in, in my teaching is to open your eyes to realize that that technology had a history and and it's probably worth investigating so that at least you get your head wrapped around it. Uh, so let's go higher and higher and higher in frequency. Let's go above the radio range and above the radar range and let's go into the next logical progression, which is light. I mean, when you get high enough in frequency, you get to light. And if you start on the visible spectrum, on one end is going to be infrared, on the other end is going to be ultraviolet. On the, uh, on the low end, on the infrared end, um, certain animals see an infrared. They see very well in infrared. A good example would be the mosquito, um, probably one of the most deadliest animals on Earth. The mosquito can see an infrared and has zero problem uh, smelling you out because of your breath, because of the carbon dioxide that you emit. All animals, all mammals emit carbon dioxide, so they have sensors to look for that and to smell it. And then they can see in infrared, so they can see the heat signature and they know that you have blood and blood's good for them, so they're on you and hopefully not giving you some dreaded disease. If you look at the visible spectrum of light as we move into that, the Remember, this is still <laughs> the same spectrum as we started off with, uh, just moving that electron faster and faster and faster. But as you look at the visible spectrum of light, the absence of light is black. When we take all the light away, it gets dark. But when we combine all the colors of light, it's white. If I put white light through a red lens, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, well, all we're seeing is red. That's the only color we're seeing. And that's not actually true. What a red lens does is give you every color of the spectrum but that color red. 
it's subtractive. It's exactly opposite of what you think. If I took all the colors of paint and mixed them all together, theoretically I'd get black. But if I take all the colors of light and mix them all together, I get white. So it is completely opposite day when it comes to light. If I'm if I'm doing photography and my photo is too blue, I actually have to add more blue or more cyan to balance the picture out. It becomes so difficult in doing color photography that without a color analyzing computer, when I was doing it, it was very difficult to get it right, to get your, your color balancing right. Even if you look at a lens on a camera, any good quality camera, you'll see colors inside on the optics of the lens. Those colors help focus all the different wavelengths of light at the same plane. So whether you're using a film camera or using a camera that's digital, it's got a CCD in it, you want all those wavelengths to focus on the same exact plane uh, of the visible light anyway. If you happen to have uh, a camera, an older camera, 35 millimeter that could do infrared, then on the side of the lens, you would see a dot that indicated where infrared would be focused. So you could focus visibly look in the viewfinder, make sure that your picture was in focus, and then turn the barrel of the lens to match where the dot was on the side of it, and then that's where the infrared wavelength would focus. That's the difference that we're talking about here. That's the change. If we, if we look at um, a blue shirt, if you, if you look down at your shirt that you're wearing um, now, and you look at that color and you go, well, that's a blue shirt, you are seeing every color of the spectrum except that color. That is actually being absorbed by the, by the shirt. And that's why you're seeing it as blue. So if a dominant color is brown, you're seeing all the colors of the spectrum but that color brown. It's being absorbed. Black is the absorption of all light. White is the reflection of all light. And that's the way that that is actually played. As you go above that into the ultraviolet spectrum, now you're looking at a whole different animal. As you go higher and higher in the light spectrum, the wavelength gets shorter and shorter. It gets so short that your eyes can't even focus on it, which is why at night, if you see a, a really uh, dark blue sign um, on a business, and you, you, try to, you have to sometimes squint to get it all in focus to read it or to see it, and that's because the, the, you can't shape your eye uh, well enough to actually get those things in focus, get those wavelengths in focus, they're actually too high. They're, they're too small for your eye. Now, if you're young, you might be able to see it just fine, but if you're in my age, you're not gonna. Um, as you get into the ultraviolet world, that opens up a whole different can of worms. Uh, if you look at flowers, if you get a chance to uh, Google flowers in, in ultraviolet, you'll see a whole different perspective of what certain animals will see, like bees, for example, when they look at flowers, uh, we see them as beautiful yellow or white or whatever color flower it is you're looking at, but in ultraviolet, it can actually give the bee directions on where to find the pollen. So to some, to some animals, when they look in, to, in ultraviolet, they'll actually see almost a runway where, where the flower is saying, look, land here, walk here, and this is where I either eat you or you get free pollen, one of the two. A pitcher plant's a good example to look up in ultraviolet. It helps the bees see 
what the flower is providing, which is obviously the pollen. So ultraviolet is a, is a fantastic medium. Um, obviously, it, the, the light itself can be quite harmful, so you'd have to watch, uh, watch what you do with it. But it's it's a it's a it's a beautiful uh, a beautiful way to look at, at at different things is look at them in ultraviolet, look at them in infrared, look at them in visible uh, light, and you'll see three different perspectives of the same exact plant. Um, really quite eye opening to me. So as we go above ultraviolet, now we're going higher and higher in frequency or shorter wavelengths, and and at this point we look at you know we're in the billionths of a meter in wavelength if we look back at our at our frequencies on like like 1190kx the wavelength on that is several hundred feet long it's probably i didn't i should probably calculate it for this but it didn't but it's going to be well over 180 meters so it's probably 200 and some odd meters long for one wavelength so even though it's oscillating at 1.190 million times a second each wave is several hundred feet long. Well, now when we get up here to the visible light spectrum, each wave is a billionth of a meter in length, tiny. And that is the change from one side to the other. Well, what happens when you go above visible light? When you go above ultraviolet, where do we go? That's where we get into x-rays. That's the next easy stop on this transition would be x-rays. So if I break my hand and I go to the doctor and get an x-ray, as the as the as the X-ray is shot of my hand and I put it in front of film or a CCD, whichever technology you happen to have, um, the X-rays will go through the skin, but they won't go through the bones, depending on the type of X-ray machine. If it's just just doing regular bone broken bone X-rays, it's designed to not go through your bones. Therefore, on the X-ray, your bones would appear as white because they didn't expose the CCD or the film. But where the flesh was, it easily exposed the film and darkened it. If I have a crack in my hand or my bone, then the x-rays would go through the crack and that would show up on the x-ray. You could see exactly where the, where the uh, crack was. That's what x-rays do. So even though you can get x-rays that are powerful enough to go through steel for welds, for example, industrial x-ray machines, uh, or medical x-ray where we're just taking a picture of, say, your teeth or, or a broken bone or a CAT scan, some sort of special um, x-ray uh, imaging that can uh, actually give a doctor more insight and almost a three-dimensional look at what's going on, uh, look at your organs. I mean, now that the technology is there to really image without having to open you up, um, all these technologies that weren't available 100 years ago um, at the, at the uh, you know, the safety levels that we have today, um, there's a whole history behind how we got to here, how we got to this point. And if you've ever wondered, you know, wow, I mean, x-rays, how can these things, you know, what, what, what other what other unique things could we talk about in, in the X-ray world? If you if you don't know it, I'll I'll give you an example. In the Soviet Union, when it was uh, in existence prior to '91, uh, it was illegal to listen to Western music, and so the uh, the the it was very common to take X-rays and to just throw them in the trash when they were done. And the X-ray films that the Soviets used were much thicker 
than the type that we use in the United States. We have a very thin emulsion. They had a very thick emulsion. Well, it turns out that you can cut a record on those thick x-rays. And if you look up bone records and go Google bone records, you'll see what we're talking about here. But there were x-rays that, that the uh, that Soviets took out, that citizenry took out of the, of the trash cans, cut records on, and then would burn a hole through the middle of it and then play Western music on, on illegal Western music on um, phonographs in the Soviet Union. And people died for this, okay? People went to prison. Uh, the KGB chased people down that did this because it was against the law. So you can now look at bone records and understand where um, this particular culture was so adamant about listening to uh, music outside of their own country that that they would put it on x-rays, if you could imagine. So x-rays, uh, obviously you can you can do quite a bit with x-rays. There's, there's a very, very powerful, um, uh, uh, very, very, very powerful energy that can do damage uh, if you're exposed to too much of it. Uh, just like infrared, uh, or just like ultraviolet, or just like white light. You know, you can you can stand out in the sun and, and get yourself cooked in front of a fusion reactor um, by by you know not putting the right suntan lotion on and stuff like that. So these technologies can also be dangerous. But if we go above X-rays, where do we go next? Well, I would have to stop at gamma rays. So gamma rays obviously come out of um, of uh, radioactive products or radioactive decay or fission. And in some cases, uh, like in the case of a reactor where the, uh, the operators of the reactor and the folks who are familiar with it can tell you exactly how much gamma radiation is coming out at any given point in time because they know all the mathematics associated with breaking the breaking down of U-235. Uh, but that gamma radiation will go through just about anything. Go through steel, go through metal uh, or lead, go through cement. Um, I was on a, uh, a nuclear-powered cruiser for a while in the military, and um, you know we knew exactly how much exposure the engineers were getting. Um, they all carried uh, dosimeters to make sure that uh, that they all knew exactly them, themselves how much radiation exposure they had had. Uh, interesting point was I had a, a division officer who uh, did electronic warfare with us up in combat and also was a reactor controls operator. So he really had gone to college and gone to school to be a, a reactor controls guy, not necessarily an electronic warfare officer. So he spent a lot of time in the engine room. One time he left his uh, dosimeter on his pants in his stateroom and went uh, back to Texas for a couple of weeks. When he came back, his dosimeter... Um, was hot. Basically, he had been exposed to radiation because he was supposed to have turned it in and forgot to. And I was kind of baffled because, as a you know, as an electronic warfare guy, I don't know a whole lot about reactors. And I said, "Well, I don't understand, sir. If you left your your dosimeter in your stateroom, which was not near the reactor, why would it be exposed?" And he goes, "Well, there was depleted uranium on the other side of the stateroom wall." And I thought, "Well, that I did not know that." And so he had to explain to me, "Look." If you if you have a, um, we use twenty millimeter cannon shells to feed our phalanx, which is an anti missile system on the ship. Uh, if you have those things stored and it's depleted uranium, uh, it's heavy enough that it'll go through anything, which is why you use it. But it's also radioactive, and as that as that 
is that element is breaking down from uranium into lead, it's also going through all these transitionary states and some of those are gamma emitters. And so he goes, yeah, you could have, you know, uh, as much if not more exposure from from depleted uranium as you would from the reactors. He goes, at least I know what I'm getting from the reactors. I can measure it and I can I can do it. I can figure that out. I don't know what I'm getting from, from my stateroom, but I, I, I know it's, it's not healthy. I just thought that was an interesting anecdotal point. A lot of the folks I've taught and worked with are former military, and we've all handled uh, ammo at one point or another. And who knows how much you know this depleted uranium has affected us. So, so something to keep in mind. If we go above uh, gamma radiation, the really the last place I stop is cosmic radiation or cosmic rays. And cosmic rays are very high powerful. They're at this point. It's almost hard to call it a ray. It's almost a particle. Uh, and the discussion of whether light acts as a particle or a wave is not, is not I'm not here to, to, to tell you which way it is. Uh, I will encourage you, however, to read and uh, read the science on it because it's, it's quite interesting. But cosmic rays are very powerful and can go right through the Earth without a without a sweat. Matter of fact, I think they've measured uh, cosmic rays um, powerful enough that it you would have to you'd have to in, in order for your brain to to sort of summarize um, what it would be like. It would be like a softball flying at you, you know, at several thousand miles an hour. It's just an it's an incredible amount of energy packed into a particle that can just bounce right through you, right through the earth, and just keep right on going. Uh, and that's the DC to daylight lecture in a, in a nutshell. It's uh, something that, that uh, I like to give. I like to, to, to give all my students just, um, just to open their eyes up. And then obviously, if we we're sitting here on a whiteboard, I would go back and reiterate all the different techniques and the different things we talked about in uh, in this given time period and then encourage folks to to kind of go back and fill in the gaps that I couldn't couldn't cover the the whole idea of this lecture is just to open your eyes up to go wow I didn't realize it was that simple or that it was that accessible at this point the other thing that that I think is critical for you to remember is that is that if you take the time and learn about some of the technologies we, we've, we've talked about, and if you actually pick up what I'm laying down <laughs> in, in no uncertain terms, uh, it will do you nothing but good to learn it and just, and just get your head wrapped around it, even if you don't do anything with it. Just so that you're familiar with it, so that when the terms come up, you go, you know, I have a little bit of an idea how that how that works out, and then I know that I can go and and spend some time on the internet and look at it. You can wiki all of this stuff and and get your head wrapped around some of this technology. When we look back at it and realize that there's all these different modulation techniques and all these different different things that we've 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 talked about in this one little short lecture. You can also realize that that all of our technology today is built upon that, and as hard as you want to try to get away from it, you can't. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. Ethernet technology, where it started from, has roots in radio. Um, if you look back at packet 
technology, which was something that the ham radio guys had invented to move data back and forth between the Hawaiian island chains. That is the basic premise, that AX25 protocol is the basic premise that eventually um, DARPA went in and created uh, TCPIP with. So you can see the little tiny building blocks, and, and I've just basically hit the highlights of it. I've not gone into detail, and if I've made any critical errors in judgment, you're certainly welcome to contact me and, and say, yep, yep, you're off here. I certainly don't, I certainly don't mind critique. So if you have any questions, comments, kvetches, please give us an email at halfwattpod at gmail.com. That's halfwattpod at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed the lecture, and I hope that, um, that it opens your eyes, and I hope you listen to our podcast, because I think we put a lot of effort into it, and uh, this Half Watt podcast is for you.